The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're looking at the military's influence on the food we eat and the containers that food comes in. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Anastasia Marks de Salcedo, a writer and author living in Boston. She is interested in the things that are hiding in plain sight, often buried in volumes of bureaucratic documents and jargon-filled professional journals. Her current writing passions are industrial food science, microbial farms, and non-munitions military technology transfer. She's worked as a public health consultant, the publisher of a news magazine, and a public policy researcher. And she's here today to talk about her recent book, Combat Ready Kitchen, How the U.S. Military Shapes the Way You Eat. Anastasia, welcome. Thank you for having me on the show, Rochelle. So how much do we actually know about how and why food goes bad? I mean, what is the process behind spoiled food? How does it spoil? Well, I think we actually know a great deal. There are two major ways that food goes bad. The first are simple chemical reactions, which, um, as anyone who knows something about chemistry knows, are affected by a lot by moisture and by heat. And some of the ones that are some of the most common ones are things like um, lipid oxidation, um, which take you know turns fats. Uh, to give them a slightly rancid taste. Uh, you have non-enzymatic browning, which makes things uh, look sort of uh, discolored and can taste bad. Um, but these are not harmful, at least in the short term. Some of them have been uh, linked with health issues in the long term. But they do affect the taste and the texture of the food. The other major way that food goes bad are microorganisms. And these are generally fungi, which include yeast and bacteria. And the, they can only invade under certain conditions. They have to have, you know, the right temperature range, um, rate pH, acidity, salinity, um, something called water activity. Um, but the actual organisms themselves have a pretty wide range of ideal environments. So you might have um, conditions where that were ideal for one thing and one uh, certain fungi, but not for another type of bacteria. Um, for the most part, the fungi, although they can be unpleasant, are not terribly dangerous when they grow on fresh or prepared food. Um, they can be in when they grow on crops in the field and in storage, but that's a different scenario. When uh, invading food, bacteria are actually divided into two different important categories. One are spoilage and the other are pathogenic. So again, while the spoilage bacteria are unpleasant and they are responsible for, you know, sort of the stinky smells and unpleasant textures and slime, they're not necessarily that dangerous. So while we want to prevent their growth, it's really primarily for palatability issues. So the final category here, which are the pathogenic bacteria, are another matter. And that's, um, it's, this is where food scientists really start paying attention and they need to work very carefully to ensure that they don't grow in, uh, in food, fresh or preserved food. And so generally, for example, when you have, um, a preserved food using thermal sterilization, which is generally sort of the equivalent of canning, food scientists have to meet the highest threshold to eliminate, um, 
a bacteria called uh, botulinum, uh, which causes botulism. So uh, that sort of gives you the the overview there of um, the what we know about how food goes bad and the process behind it. Now, in terms of uh, gaps in our current knowledge, I think that we're pr- we're pretty good at. Uh, preserving foods with a longer shelf life and foods that have been sterilized. Actually, where the biggest gap probably is is in in getting fresh fresh foods to last longer. And there's still a lot of research in that area. Um, and on the other side, and this is actually something that is being led uh, by the U.S. military, there's an exploration of new ways to sterilize food that don't rely on uh, on heat. Interesting. So what are some of those ways that they're exploring that don't use heat? This is actually something that came out of work that was done by this army base that I talked about, which is the Natick Soldier Systems Center here in Massachusetts, where I am. And in the late 1990s and early 2000s, they actually sort of set a goal of coming up with a bunch of different alternates to heat sterilization. One of those has actually been quite successful, and it's called high-pressure processing. And what that does is to use um, immense pressure uh, in which is exerted on the food, uh, which is through water in a pressure vessel. And that uh, pressure has the effect of loosening or breaking uh, single bonds and molecules. And so uh, some of the things inside, you know, fats and carbohydrates and so forth and proteins are sort of unraveled and can no longer function, which is sort of what happens when you cook food anyway. So that's fine um, for the food. But if you happen to be a microorganism lurking inside, you also have some of these things in your, um, you know, as part of, for example, your cell membrane and so forth. And that will lead to your expiration. (laughs) I was surprised reading the book how much focus has been placed on palatability. We mentioned that there are some health risks for certain types of food spoilage and uh, bacteria that can get in, but there's actually been in military history as they're looking at how to get food to their troops to extend the shelf life uh, so that they can get, they can have the food longer so that it can transfer better. But there has been a huge focus on whether or not the food tastes good, not just whether or not the food can healthily be eaten. Did this surprise you at all? You know, I didn't really think about it that way, but there's um, a very good reason for that. And it has to do with um, two things. One is that a soldier, you know, in the field actually will burn a lot more calories than the regular person just sitting around or doing their chores. Um, so they, they may have a higher caloric requirement. At the same time, um, the stress of uh, battle and, you know, the duress of, of this sort of long expedition takes its tolls on their appetite and they are soldiers will often um, not eat enough and begin to actually lose weight. 
So it's very important for the the rations that um, the military produces to taste good so they will keep eating them. Oh, interesting. So it's as much about encouraging the men and women in the military to continue eating by making it a pleasant experience as it is about delivering the caloric intake required. Absolutely. And in fact, it's still a problem. And, you know, they still have this problem that that in these extreme situations, soldiers will uh, not eat enough. And that, of course, affects their um, their performance cognitively and physically. Your book definitely focuses on how much of our current food industry and certainly the way food is processed and packaged uh, has really come from military R&D and for military needs. Um, how just when you're in a grocery store, how much of the food that we see there has been in some way it just has the touch of the military behind it, I guess. In the book, I actually have a chapter where I give the reader a tour of the grocery store, bringing him or her through the aisles and plucking all the things off which have a military origin or influence. And then at the end, I estimate that the grocery store would be half empty. Um, that's actually could be an underestimate because my in my book, I actually focused on only a few techniques or food products, I could see that there were many more that I didn't have um, the many years or it would have taken to research them. So, um, but I would estimate that at least 50% of the grocery store would be empty. So uh, the history of combat rations is interesting in and of itself, but I'm actually going to skip over some of the the past history. And I want to jump right to World War One and two, because it seems <laughs> like that's when food processing really started to go underway. I mean, before we had made some uh, some changes with having things like tin cans, um, there were some techniques that we that uh, military groups and uh, just average people tended to use. But World War One and World War Two in particular, things really start to change. Can you talk a little bit about what was going on, what the demands of the military were there, what was different about it, and why this sparked such a change in, in food R&D and an interest in it? The two wars, they presented the same problem, which was simply that they were all of a sudden, uh, a, there was a need to feed millions of troops as opposed to hundreds of thousands of troops. And those were overseas. Um, so in the first uh, World War, that gave rise to a pretty radical change in how um, meat was processed, which um, we can talk about a little bit, which is, um, but I want to we can go back to it because I want to move on to World War II, which is really where f- the food science took off. Um, food World War II, uh, the increase was from 400,000 to 11.6 million uh, troops to feed over the course of the war. And when the U.S. went into that, it actually had just two sort of modern rations that could be eaten out of hand. It had something called um, the D ration, which was a deliberately unpalatable chocolate bar, which was sort of the great granddaddy of the energy bar, and the C ration, which was sort of a stew in a can. Uh, these were shipped all over the globe to Europe and to the Pacific, but they did not fare very well in terms of the food didn't uh, did not withstand some of the the extreme. Uh, 
conditions and uh, and rough handling. So uh, it it deteriorated, it molded, it spoiled, and the packaging fell apart. Um, so at that point, the U.S. Army had entered the war without really any food research capability at all. I mean, it had this little tiny lab, with three people in it in Chicago who had just started to, had just developed these two rations, the D ration and the C ration. And over the course of the war, um, to sort of meet this need, that little uh, laboratory grew from three people to 300 people. And the army began to do all research into all sorts of uh, different aspects of food science, including uh, nutrition, chemistry, uh, vitamins, and um, sensory evaluation of food. By it also began to work um, very regularly with university and industrial laboratories. And so, um, again, at the beginning of the war, it had no outside projects with um, these collaborators. By the end of the war, there were over 500 different uh, food science projects going on around the country. So after the war ended, and this is the, this is really the critical juncture, um, because the U.S. decided to institute this policy of preparedness in case there was ever another war on that scale. And what preparedness has meant um, is that the military needs to be in a state of perpetual readiness, as does the commercial sector that supports it. And in the case of rations, that means the food industry. And that means that um, the, uh, the, the Department of the Army that uh, creates rations works to get any of the science that it develops into the food industry so that they uh, would be able to, if, if needed, to convert their production lines to rations. This is kind of a counterintuitive thing when we talk about the military, because when we think about military science and military R&D, we think like deep, dark secrets that no one else can get their hands on. But this is really the opposite. This is them trying to, as much as possible, um, perpetuate these processes and some of the technology that's being developed around the commercial sector so that if the need arises, they can immediately start making rations for them without having to install anything new, without having to change their processes. They've already got everything working. They basically just have to just use it in a slightly different way. Exactly. This is really the MO overall for many different uh, technology areas. It's in the case of certainly armaments and you know some of the the uh, equipment and so forth, there it, there is classified information, but there are many support areas where this process is also going on, including things like um, medicine and um, the construction industry, the automotive industry, because all these things are uh, needed for warfare. So that those secret, those, most of the time, actually, military research, as is any sort of federally funded research, is, is the, the goal is to get it out into the private sector. So where does a lot of the R&D for military food rations and food processing start and come from? 
So we talked about this army base, which is here in Massachusetts, the uh, Natick Soldier System Center. And within that base is one of 80 Defense Department research laboratories around the country. And at this particular one, um, it is dedicated to anything to support the individual soldier during warfare. So that includes things like um, footwear, airdrop equipment, tents, textiles, body armor, environmental medicine, and combat rations. So there are about, I think, 10 to 12 sort of program areas overall, and the combat rations is one of them. They have a special building where, um, which is full of uh, civilian food scientists and food technologists, and there they pretty much spend all year uh, developing and perfecting rations. But there's another part of this, and this is the part where which uh, t- reaches out to the food industry, and that is they're also working on the science to make those things last even longer or be even more nutritious or whatever the particular goal is. And and a lot of that research is not done uh, on site, or part of it may be done on site, but it's done with collaborators, um, just as it was done during World War II. And so, I can go. <laughs> yeah, I'm just curious, what types of collaborators uh, would they have? So uh, I guess commercial industry is one of them, and I, I presume universities as well? Mm-hmm. That's the, those are the two big types of collaborators. And there are a whole bunch of different ways that they can collaborate. And um, this is, you know, the, the uh, Defense Department has its research organized into different categories. And um, those go through, start at 6.1, which is basic research, and then 6.2, which is applied research, all the way uh, up to, I think it's 6.7. And that is actually sort of this production of all the sorts of um, militarily unique equipment. Uh, what um, There are many different vehicles for working with uh, universities and private companies to do this research. Some of them are just straight up contracts uh, to do some piece of the research or development. And um, so these, you know, they have go through very uh, typical government contracting process or a lot of regulation, a lot of oversight and so forth. Uh, there's some special programs uh, small, for small business and um, small technology companies. And those, again, are subject to all sorts of uh, federal oversight and uh regulations and those they often will have a little piece of um the research project that the that the defense department has envisioned and they carry that out and then they can use whatever uh, result there is and commercialize that so that's one way that uh, gets out into the marketplace Moving further away from this whole sort of oversight and and uh, regulation model, there are there are a bunch of cooperative vehicles, um, some of which may involve funding, and many of which that do not, but involve other sorts of contributions on the side of of um, the Department of Defense as well as the partners. So these things uh, will, will may involve one or several universities, one or several large 
companies, maybe a couple small companies. Um, sometimes they involve other federal agencies. The FDA is a favorite partner, actually, <laughs> as is the USDA. Um, and so uh, the name, some of these are called uh, cooperative research and development agreements. And these have very little um, uh, regulation and and there's sort of the and actually and oversight, and the partners then can take whatever is developed in that project and turn around and use it, you know, to create consumer products. And in fact, one of the things we talked about right at the beginning of the interview, which is high pressure processing, was developed in exactly this sort of a consortium. It was done in a, a group that included, I think, about 10 of the largest <laughs> food and packaging companies in the U.S., everyone from um, Hormel to uh, Mars to uh, some uh, Unilever and, I think, Best Foods. To It also included the FDA and, uh, the, and a university with the uh, University of Illinois. And they worked together to, to develop this new technique. And then when it got to a certain point, some of the partners, including uh, Hormel, took that and, and created new products. In fact, Hormel had a great success with its high-pressure processed preservative-free deli line, which I think is called um, Simply Naturals or something like that. We assume that in most of these cases, the military department of defense is, is funding the bill for this type of research. But you mentioned that in some cases, they aren't actually providing funding or they're providing only a, maybe a mm-hmm. small portion of the funding. So if they're not bankrolling the research, then where is their finger in this? What um, impact or connection do they have with this research? Okay. So, um, so let's going back to this these sort of more, these cooperative research vehicles that don't involve funding. Now, the CRADA is an example. And another one is called, is a special uh, funding mechanism for the Defense Department called an, the other transaction. Um, in these cases, the uh, Defense Department may provide staff, um, facilities, you know, research assistance, uh, and, and work on the project to simply may not be giving, uh, be, be providing funds or in the case of the other transaction, be providing just a minimal amount of funds. Um, what their finger is, I think you mean is how are they controlling this is that they would, they are often the one who proposes this project and goes and puts together the consortium, um, or the team to carry it out. I see. So they're often the place where the ideas or the research gets proposed. Um, I presume that they're also paying attention to what's going on. And if they see something and go, hmm, yes, I want a piece of that, they probably will encourage or connect with the people doing that type of research as well. <laughs> well, yes. And they also have a very intricate and um, uh, organized planning process, which is perfect you know tweet every year they have there's an oversight committee that for the um the food science research program that at this point is done by an internal committee to the military but 
up until the 1980s was actually done by an outside group that was organized by the National Academy of Sciences. And that group gets together and they, you know, they they have a whole listening process for getting, um, developing a set of goals. Um, and that includes talking to soldiers. It includes talking to the various services, getting direction from, you know, different, the, the undersecretary of defense in charge of, uh, of research, um, information from presidential directives. And they, they, kind of sort of digest all that and spit out a set of goals. And then they take whatever budget they have for that year and they figure out what the priorities are. And of course, um, some of these projects can take a very long time. And one of the ways that one of the things that makes the military more powerful in directing the food industry is that it's able to take these very long-term goals and projects and, and fund them over that time period. And because it's not a private company, which might be concerned about benefiting its competitors with some, you know, critical basic research, um, that new information is available to all. The meat industry has been transformed quite a bit by military involvement, especially since World War One. So can you maybe talk a little bit about what the meat industry looked like before World War One, uh, what it looks like now, and a little bit about how we got there just by way of illustrating how what the differences are that we're talking about? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the big thing... Uh, changeover came for the meat industry that was related to the military came during World War One. And what that was, was that until that point, and you know, there was, there had been evolution in the way that, uh, meat was, uh, prepared and sold. And probably the biggest one, um, had come about in the 19th century, which was shipping, uh, carcasses, chilled carcasses around, which of course came about with, first with ice and then with refrigeration. Um, that was, first used during a war in the Spanish-American War um, with some, to some ill effect because there was a, there was a, a controversy related to uh, the, some spoilage of meat en route. But during World War One, there was a very important uh, change in the way that meat was processed for uh, sending to army camps. And that was that because there was such a huge volume of uh, meat that needed to be shipped overseas, the army decided to try for the very first time cutting the meat off the bone and packing it into boxes and freezing it. And this, t- today you kind of laugh, that's a breakthrough. But, but until then, people had, um, you know, gone to the butcher and the butcher had cut pieces off the carcass that was hanging in the, in the meat locker and, and given it to them. So this would have been, uh, you know, pretty, pretty new. Actually, so this, it, there were some problems with it when it was used for soldiers, which was that because it was the sort of the first time they had dumped everything all together in one big bag, wrapped it up in burlap and sort of sent it overseas. So the, uh, the army cooks had to actually chop up this frozen thing with an axe oh. and it didn't end up being very tasty. And I think they sort of this mush. Um, but, uh, between the two wars, the, 
army worked the kinks out of this system and figured out one thing it did was to adopt um, flash freezing, which reduced the size of the crystals in the meat so that it's a lot more palatable. They learned to actually sort the cuts by type and pack those together so you'd have all chops or steaks or um, stew meat. And so during World War II, they also used this system and it was uh, well accepted by soldiers. And in fact, after toward the war ended, the um, the quartermaster corps, which is this uh, special branch of the army for supplies, including food, thought that this was going to be one of its biggest hits, um, and it was going to become be embraced by the consumer sector. Well, it wasn't, and um, in part that was because the housewife still wasn't ready to accept, you know, some sort of uh, cut that was frozen and and you know ready to cook. But eventually, the meat industry embrace this whole idea and and it was part of a a real a dying out of the old model and a birth of a new one and that there was a changeover from having the stock yards um at railroad terminuses and bringing them into uh, feedlots that could be uh, reached by the new highway system there was a changeover from having skilled butchers um breaking apart the carcasses to having um that done by unskilled labor and finally there was instead of shipping the carcasses to the retailer, they now shipped boxes of uh, chilled or frozen meat. And that um, was finally uh, embraced by the industry and, and uh, supermarkets and so forth in the 1960s, which gave rise to a new change, which I can talk about. Yeah, <laughs> I'm absolutely. Not, I'm not going on too long. No, no. Um, it's actually then the uh, army turned around and said, great, you finally um, adopted our, uh, our innovation. So now that we can buy any, um, just one cut of meat, we're going to try and uh, reduce the cost of our meat bill by 60% by buying the cheapest cuts and turning them into something that looks like steaks. <laughs> so this gave rise to the uh, the fabricated meat project of the 1960s which which was this whole um long uh project that began with equipment and went through uh with the discovery of meat glue by uh, one of the Native Center's collaborators, which is Oscar Meyer, figuring out things, uh, how um, meat fibers function in dead and live animals, and finally that the addition of phosphate helped to retain juices. So putting all these things together, by the early 1970s, the Natick Center had figured out a way to make um, fabricated, or as it's now known, um, restructured meats and was serving soldiers in the field, uh, pork, restructured pork chops, lamb chops, veal steaks, and beef steaks. And, um, this technology, of course, of making a meat that looks like a steak that is actually made from, you know, the little bits and scraps, um, was pretty interesting for the food industry and uh, starting immediately afterwards, 
some of the contractors on that project began to work with the fast food industry. And sure enough, by the very early 80s, um, the very first restructured meat product had appeared, and that was the McRib, which is sold by McDonald's. And um, that that actually um, was not well received by the consumer at first because it was um, a little bit at odds at what they were expecting and McDonald's had to give it away to get people to try it. But eventually people did try it and they liked it. And uh, that gave rise to sort of a wholesale embrace of the technology by the food industry. And at this point in time, there are, our uh, grocery store is really populated by these products. So if you go and you look in the freezer section or in the refrigerator case, you will, if you see things that are nuggets or patties or cutlets or anything that looks formed um, in many of the deli meats, these are all restructured meat products, which are a ch- new, cheaper way um, to sell animal protein. And at least in the U.S. has presided over an overall increase in the amount of animal protein that we eat per person since the 1950s of actually 60 pounds. Wow. So if you want to know who to thank or possibly blame for the chicken nugget, now you know. (laughs) (laughs) There is a focus in the military on protein, or at least there has been. And this leads me to a question of of why a focus on protein? Is it just because people like to eat meat? Or uh, is it actually valuable somehow to military men? I mean, could the military be vegetarian if they wanted to be? Well, I think um, there are two ways to answer that question. The first is that uh, combat rations go back a really, really long time. (laughs) In fact, um, they were first eaten in ancient Sumer. And uh, they, not in ancient Sumer, but a little bit later, there was the discovery of, you know, this dried or salted preserved protein. And because this would have been much more nourishing than the first thing, which were pretty much, which were little cakes, little um, barley cakes, uh, that became sort of a valuable addition to the things that soldiers could carry. And then after that, um, most of the world's major warrior cultures ended up with some kind of preserved protein that could be carried of uh, the um, prosciutto actually and, and uh, ham and sausages of the Romans was a way for soldiers to carry about a preserved protein. The Mongols had, uh, they actually were the inventors of dried milk and they had a jerky um, and the uh, the Vikings had salt cod. So these, these were key parts of warrior food throughout history. The other thing is that as you, you know, people have this sort of uh, cultural attachment to meat eating and it's sort of ceremonial and it's, it symbolizes you know, sort of the good life. And I think that that enters into it as well. So that's probably one of the reasons that uh, soldiers still tend to eat a lot of meat. But that said, I, there's no reason why an army couldn't be vegetarian, um, given that we understand the nutritional requirements 
And in fact, the U.S. military has a vegetarian ration as it also has a halal and a, and a kosher one. There's often a lot of uh, salt or sugar in processed or preserved foods. Can you talk a little bit about why those two items, salt and sugar, are so good at this? Well, salt and sugar are both preservatives. And we now know um, from work done in the late 1950s by an Australian uh, food scientist who discovered a concept called water activity, how, how that works. Um, and what it does is that they're both solids and they bind up water molecules, which reduces the amount of what is the free water, the water available for microorganisms to use um, for their life functions. Um, so if you can get the water activity down within a certain range, then microorganisms can no longer reproduce and the food is uh, safe and can be preserved for a long time. Um, because salt and sugar, you know, are food ingredients with a really, really long history um, and people like their taste and they're cheap, they're probably um, the, uh, the food industry's preferred preservative. We often look now at salt and sugar contents, or at least point at salt and sugar content of processed food as a sort of indicator of their, and I'm using air quotes here, evilness. Um, do you think that's a fair rap? Well, I think that whether or not they're good for us is a, is a slightly different question. I do think that one of the most important reasons that they are there is to act as a preservative. And as I said, um, you know, that because they are, they have a long history of safe use, um, you know, people like the taste um, and that they're cheap, they are something that the industry would prefer to add rather than, you know, a chemical. Uh, you know, that said, I think certainly there can be health implications from using too much of either ingredient. And I know, you know, I think so, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'm not going to say that it's a good thing <laughs> because, you know, I, and one of the, one of the interesting things is that at this point, really, we are having some new preservation techniques emerge that, you know, reduce the need for chemical preservatives and, and salt and sugar. And then, as I said, there was that the high pressure processing, there's several others, there's something called microwave assisted thermal sterilization, there's some pulse electric fields, it's just whole line of new techniques that may make um, it easier to preserve food without relying either on um, our old standby salt and sugar or uh, chemical additives. Clearly, the military has had a big impact on what we eat and how our food systems uh, are set up. But I guess the somewhat more speculative uh, and maybe for a lot of people, the more important question is, is that a good thing? Has the positive impact of the military on our food systems been uh, sort of outweigh what the potential negative impacts are? You know, I wouldn't frame it quite that way because I think there have been a number of positive impacts and certainly in the uh, field of food safety, um, we have we do have a lot of foods that are you know much 
more convenient, um, even things like the uh, modified atmosphere packaging that it is now used for um, little bags of salad or greens that came out of a, 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 a military project during the 1960s and shipping um, fresh produce to Vietnam. Um, some of these, again, going back to these new uh, food preservation techniques that are emerging that may use fewer pre preservatives and seem to um, maintain the fresh taste, texture, and most of the nutrients. So those are all good things. Um, there are also some bad things. And so I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't necessarily put it as a choice between should we accept military influence or not accept military influence, but I think we should be part of the process in guiding that research that ends up affecting us. So, so to just stay up with what's going on and be aware that the military does have such a big influence on our food systems. That's one thing. And then I think that even I think there's a place for some consumer oversight of military food research. And in fact, I think there's a place for uh, consumer oversight of a lot of different uh, military research activities. Do you think there's a place for potential regulation to say, OK, well, in a military standpoint, this is appropriate for you because you have some very particular needs that need to be met? And in some cases, we can't meet them any other way. But for a the general public, maybe we need a slightly different set of regulations because there aren't the same needs. Hmm. I said, I said, you know, I don't think that would fly very well <laughs> because <laughs> when you you're basically saying, well, soldiers, you're gonna, you guys are gonna eat some crappy food for a little while because no, I that 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 would be not the way to go here. I think what we want to do is bring the uh, military standards to the same level as those for consumers. And I think, I actually think that, that if we find a place where there could be more consumer involvement in the military food research program, maybe we could do things like, you know, maybe the military could go organic, who knows, or, or, you know, be more concerned about um, sustainable agriculture and processing techniques. Um, you know, they, the, the military is very aware of a lot of consumer trends and those have I think affected it positively. It's been, you know, more concerned about um, fat, you know, fat and food. It's been concerned about trans fat. It's, you know, trying to reduce salt and sugar. Uh, it's right now, you know, it's it's spent a lot of time in the past decade working on things like gut health and probiotics and prebiotics and so forth. So um, those consumer trends are also picked up by uh, the army, and uh, that's a good thing. I think that there that more uh, consumer involvement in military research would be good for both outcomes, both improving soldier food and making sure that uh, these food science and technology that gets disseminated in the commercial world is one that impacts us positively. Anastasia, thanks so much. It was a really interesting book, and it's been lovely to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Rochelle. If you want to learn more about Anastasia or her book, Combat Ready Kitchen, How the U.S. Military Shapes the Way You Eat, we've got links up on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. After the break, I'll be back with statistician Patrick McKnight to talk about BPA and how stats might help shed some light on the controversy around it. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. 
you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. With me is Dr. Patrick McKnight, an associate professor and statistician in George Mason University's Department of Psychology. He oversees the Measurement, Research, Methodology, Evaluation, and Statistics Group and serves on the advisory board of stats.org. His work primarily focuses on applications of psychological science to areas of medicine, psychology, and methods. Patrick, welcome to Science for the People. Well, thanks for having me. So you wrote an article for the stats for stats.org titled How Statistics Can Solve the BPA Controversy. So uh, for those who live under a rock and have never heard of BPA, and there are always one or two of them around, um, can you give us a quick summary of what BPA is and why there is a controversy around it? Sure. Um, and this is coming from a, a non-specialist. I'm not a toxicologist, nor am I uh, uh, in any way a a biochemist. BPA, to my understanding, is an estrogen that's used to harden or to seal off plastics that are typically used in any type of container. Typically, people would contain uh, water or some sort of fluid that humans ingest. And so it's a, it's a, uh, for the longest time, it was a well-known uh, additive to the plastics for curing. And the question was, is that w- whether this estrogen would leach out of the plastic into the fluids contained in the bottle, fluids or material, and, and hence would be transferred to humans that consume that and the, the substance that was contained in the bottle. And, and that became part of the, the investigation for most people. Uh, in science about whether this estrogen was likely to leach into the, into the consumable and, and whether humans would have, or animals or whatever, would have uh, adverse reactions to the estrogen. So one of the parts of this debate that's uh, come up repeatedly is that this suspected uh, sort of leaching effect will have uh, an effect at low doses. We usually sort of say that that the um, that the dose makes the poison, essentially. Um, but a lot of the argument here is that this could be dangerous in very, very low doses. So can you unpack that a little bit? Certainly. Uh, there were several findings uh, throughout the history of BPA research that indicated that slow doses of BPA would adversely affect the growth and development of, of certain animals. Mostly early on, it was mice and rats, and then uh, there are very limited studies on humans. But these low doses appeared to be um, problematic, let's say, that they had a high rate of, of strange developmental disorders and also of potential cancers and what have you. And that these were early indications that even low doses were potentially harmful. But then when we started looking at the uh, dose response curves, which are as you increase the doses, you expect there to be a higher response rate. As investigators and toxicologists started looking at these dose response curves, they realized that only these low doses were producing these effects and that the high doses were not producing the effects. So as we explored more into these, as I did, as I read through the literature, it became apparent that what what constituted a low dose was not really a low dose and that it was a substantially higher dose. So I think that there's more evidence on the side that the effect of low doses don't exist 
and that there's very little evidence for the non-monotonic dose response curve. So when we do talk about the idea of a low quote unquote dose, um, what, I mean, I think it's, I think it's going to be really, really small as in, as in something that I would not expect, uh, to, to cause much impact. Um, what, 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 what is a low dose in terms of these, a lot of these studies? Well, it varies, and it varies a lot. So in some instances, it may be about, oh, um, about a one one-hundredth to one two-hundredth the size of the dose uh, that, was, that would be considered to be active and, and potentially harmful to at times 100, 200, 500, 1,000 times those, quote, small doses. So in this uh, article, you also pointed out a few of problems that you had looking at both the sample sizes and the sample composition of a lot of these studies. Can you walk us through that? Yes. Um, there are a tremendous amount of problems when it comes to having animal analog models. And when anytime, anytime toxicologists do research on, on these animal models, the first thing that most people should ask is whether whether the animals are are good representatives of, of humans. That's one. That's the most obvious one. But second is, are the animals potentially uh, susceptible to problems that are unique to whatever toxin they're studying? Uh, any estrogen study that's that's conducted by toxicologists may actually increase the likelihood of developmental disorders when you have a a particular uh, rat model or mouse model and these animals are are just sensitive perhaps more sensitive than humans to estrogens the argument could also be made that they're less sensitive and that means that it would be nice if it were just a bias but unfortunately it's not so. It's that there could be a lot of error and that it's not just the animal, but there's even more detail about it. It's it's the animal's birth order that matters. So animals that are uh, closest to the um, uh, to the uh, the source when they're in the womb will have the biggest dose and the animals further on when you have a litter, the animals will have a differential um, exposure to the toxin. And not all researchers take that into consideration. Now, some do. And because of that, I think their findings are a little bit more plausible because they take into consideration the actual exposed dose of the animal in, uh, um, uh, before birth. And so it's the different type of animal, the different amount of exposure, the relevance of the animal to humans. All of these things really complicate matters. And, and it'd be nice if I could just say, well, there's an easy way to sort this out, but there isn't. That, that anytime we have animal analog models where you have litters of animals, things are complicated. And the animals may be differentially sensitive to the toxins and may actually not, in some cases, be insensitive to the toxin relative to humans. And in other cases, they may be much more, much more sensitive. So it would be in the best interests of the non-scientific community to be able to, to read this in the papers or at least be uh, have some interpretation about how relevant these findings are to humans because most of us read these papers and we immediately want to know, are these findings relevant to humans? Last I checked, most of us are not concerned whether our pet animals 
are going to be overly exposed to BPA. We wouldn't uh, we wouldn't have an FDA mandate to eliminate BPA in, say, our gerbils water bottles. Um, but we would immediately, as, as I have uh, replaced all of my BPA bottles unknowingly, I wish I had them back. Um, but we do that because we, we fear the effects on humans. And, and so when you look at the scientific body of, of evidence for BPA in particular, you find very little evidence that, that pertains to humans. The samples comp- are composed almost exclusively of rats and mice. And again, we need to ask these questions about whether they're whether they're relevant to humans. So overall, after having looked as an outsider and as someone with uh, your expertise, having looked at the body of evidence, what what have you been able to conclude or what thoughts do you have about whether or not BPA is something we should be concerned about? Well, as I indicated before, I kind of wish I had my BPA bottles back. And most of that comes from what I've learned after the last three or four months of investigating this field. I think the evidence is rather poor. And not only do I think the evidence is poor, but the estrogen that was used to replace BPA may actually be more harmful. And some instances in which we try to do uh, good by society and good by the science we end up having unintended consequences. So I think the evidence is not terribly favorable for effects of BPA on humans. Uh, That doesn't mean that there are no effects. I just evaluate the evidence and not necessarily whether whether there are true effects. And each of us ought to be left to our own devices to make these decisions, I believe. And the BPA BPA controversy was, I I think, sufficiently strong enough to move the FDA to to ban BPA bottles or, or at least warn people that BPA may be harmful. And as a result, we've, we've probably dumped more plastic in the ocean, which is not a good thing. Uh, and, and switch to alternative methods of sealing the plastic. And those methods may be equally harmful, if not more so, than BPA. So as a consumer, I would probably like to have my BPA bottles back. You mentioned uh, that we're using, in a lot of cases, different methods now to seal our plastics and that those methods, those methods are also coming under some fire for being potentially dangerous. And while I don't necessarily want to dive into that per se, because that isn't the topic, do you think that what you learned here and your uh, process of going through the research, do you expect you would potentially find similar problems in the current research about some of the other uh, additives that have replaced BPA in in packaging? I would say that there's no doubt we would find similar problems. And mostly because there's, I think there's a division within the field of toxicology. Those who who hold that almost everything that's available to humans right now is a toxin, and those who kind of I don't know are fairly skeptical skeptical about whether any of these are true toxins, and because there's a divide, I don't think it's a huge divide. I don't think it's a you know one side way over on one <laughs> on the extreme and the other on the other extreme. It's just that. I think that they fall somewhere left of center and right of center and sufficiently far enough from center that there's probably a bias. And I think that we would find some potential problems with with these uh, different estrogens. 
and these different sealing mechanisms. But at the same time, I, I wonder whether we should be as reactive to the scientific evidence. And, and I think this is where journalists could do a very good job in communicating just how little we know before we start implementing any major policy change. And, and I think that we would probably find some similar effects. And I think we would find similar controversy. People who would identify low dose effects may actually have a stake in finding effects because they have an alternative. And these biases aren't always as obvious as we would think. It's not always just a, that the plastic industry has a, uh, has a huge stake in BPA. So they're, they're going to funnel money. In, in covertly into some researcher's pocket and have that researcher selectively attend to only the effects that are supportive or 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 not of whatever their uh, findings <laughs> whatever they would like uh, so in other words the investigator bias is is potentially there but i but i don't think it's as as covert as that and or perhaps it is covert, but it's even covert to the to the investigator. The investigator just may have a sense that things are bad. And because of that, that sense will lead the person to identify any finding as true as true evidence that there is harmful effects. And because of that, I think that we're gonna we're gonna run into these these problems repeatedly, not just in toxicology, but in all sorts of areas where we have, you know, violence on television, we have violence in TV games. You know, does that, does the dose and the response equal what we expect or what mechanism we fear? Um, everything from water consumption, alcohol consumption, everything that you can imagine that's bad for humans or potentially bad will be, will be susceptible to bias. And it will be also susceptible to a lot of the findings that we're bringing up in, in this BPA research. So, Nothing that we've pointed out is necessarily restricted to BPA. I think it extends well beyond BPA to all sorts of other findings. It doesn't mean that science is bad. It doesn't mean that it's it's uh, easily corruptible. It just means that it's a um, it's a fallible process, and we all cross our fingers and hope that it's self-correcting, which it has been. It's proven that time and again, but maybe self-correcting in the time frame that we would prefer it to be much shorter. Um, other crazy findings have been rooted out and sorted out over time, but sometimes that, that takes a few decades. With BPA, it's been a few decades, and it's been taken, it's taken a lot of time to review this and be careful about it. Unfortunately, the policy was, um, in the U.S., the policies were put in place by the uh, uh, Food and Drug Administration much earlier and earlier in the process, and the scientific debate really hadn't matured. Now that it's matured, I think the policies are um, perhaps in retrospect a premature and maybe too extreme. So I do believe that we'll see this over again. Uh, history has a tendency to repeat itself, and I think we will find the same controversies coming up over and over again. So I would like I, I, I stress to everybody that they ought to learn a little bit of statistics and a little methods to help them make better decisions. Patrick, thank you so much for being here. Uh, really great to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks. I really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about Patrick or read his article on BPA and stats, you can find links to both on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. 
Science for the People is listener supported. So if you love listening to the show and want to keep it up and running and advertising free, do consider going over to our Patreon page where we provide extra special bonus content in thanks for any monthly donation you are willing to send our way. Every little bit helps. And if your budget is already stretched, but you want to show your support, you can also head on over to iTunes, where you can leave a review of the show and help new people discover us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.